right. Well, thanks guys for uh, tuning in tonight uh, to the CMI School of Christ uh, Wednesday Bible class. Uh, so glad you tuned in, whether it's uh, during the live or, or the allotted time that we set aside for these classes or whether it's uh, at a later date. Uh, just happy you're, you're there. Thanks for uh, tuning in. We just began or just finished our uh, Bible conference that I've been uh, telling you about uh, for the last few weeks. And hopefully you guys have been able to go uh, on this same channel and watch those sessions. All of them were there. Um, it seems like they're duplicated. Some We had some trouble with the, um, with the stream uh, a few nights. So Jimmy left those up there because they, they had had some uh, views and some things on them, but he posted uh, newer, uh, a little more polished, a little better um, sessions that were uh, not lagging behind in any way. So uh, hopefully you've been able to watch those again. They're on the CMI uh, web TV on YouTube. If you're watching this on YouTube, it's on the same channel that you're watching it on. So if you haven't seen those sessions, all of them, I would recommend that you do. We were able during that meeting to, you know, reconnect with people. Or I was, all of us were, um, reconnect with some folks that we haven't seen and been able to talk to uh, in some time. And so that was, that was enjoyable and very beneficial. And um, I appreciate those folks for being here and coming and uh, uh, really adding, adding to the conference. So again, listen to those sessions. I think they'll, they'll be helpful to you. We're in a study still of Romans, and we're coming to the end of uh, Romans 8. I'm debating what to do as far as continue on in Romans 9, but um, we'll see, because it does connect, uh, of course. So we'll see what happens, but uh, I want to get right into this. We were looking in the last class <clears throat> Romans 8, verse 31, and I read, I do believe, in the last class, verse 34. I'll do that again um, tonight, and then we'll just pick up where we left off. What shall we say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifies. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died. Yea, rather, that is risen again. Who is at the right hand of God, who is also making intercession for us. Now, You know, we were talking in the last class a lot about this 
who, if God is for us, who can be against us? And I'm not going to rehash the things that we've already uh, covered. But again, I will reiterate the fact that many theologians who have looked at these verses throughout the years, centuries, have said that they are the most perfectly stated, beautifully written verses that declare the security of the believer than anywhere else in Scripture. And I have to agree uh, with that because that's what you're reading here. You're reading a man who is, and, and has been, basically, throughout the whole letter, but speaking of something God has wrought in those that had no ability to do it themselves because of the state we were in. If you go through again, Romans 3, Romans 4, the impotence and the, the uh, barrenness of, of humanity, of mankind, no, whether Jew or Gentile, because Romans 3 has already stated that it doesn't matter whether they're Jew or Gentile, all are sinners, all have come short of the glory of God, because there is none righteous, no, not one, not even those who had a law, not even those who had a righteous, God-given, divinely inspired law to to do to apply didn't matter the internal state of man was the issue and always is that state could not be affected by anything external not even god's law and god's law was never intended to change man internally it was intended to prophesy and promise and point to the one, the life that would come and give man a new heart, bring in to man a new spirit, a new life, a life that is fully furnished with all spiritual realities, all things pertaining unto life and godliness, all things of which the law testified and pointed to, because he is present in the soul. That's what the law was about. It's funny because in these verses, he is now comforting the heart of those who have by faith received Christ. And speaking of going on into chapter 9 and 10 of, of Romans, he would say that those who sought righteousness by the law never attained it, have not attained it. Again, because that was not the intention. But those who sought it by faith have attained it. And it's those who have sought it by faith and attained the righteousness that they sought by faith, meaning, by faith meaning, they sought it in the assurance of another's capacity, 
to provide to them what they were incapable of providing through works or efforts of any means. Those who sought it by law believed that their efforts were capable of bringing them to the righteousness they desired and the righteousness that God demanded. And of course, that is not the case. It is those who are <clears throat> by faith believing in Christ and by faith have attained all things. And we'll talk about that in a moment. That he is comforting here. He is assuring them of their state and of their soul's condition, of God's relation to them, how unbreakable. <clears throat> how eternally secured it is and anchored in the face of the criticism, the accusation, and the condemnation of those who would come and accuse them to not yet have anything because they have not attained it by labor, effort, and works of the law. Those who are, are being told and being criticized because those who are accusing them believe, just these being Judaizers and others, that the faith that receives grace is not enough. Cannot effectuate a salvation to the uttermost. That there is ne there's necessitated some addition, some supplementation. But in verse 32, and I'm going to, I think we've already read that uh, here, and we read that in the previous class and dealt with it some. But Arthur S. Wade, his translation of Romans 8.32, says this, How can he, in giving him, speaking of Christ, how can God, how can God, in giving his son, who he has not withheld from us, how can he, but in giving him, lavish upon us all things? And if you read it in the Arthur S. Way translation, he says, lavish on us all things, and then there's a dash, and he has all, once again, stated trying to show as a Greek scholar the emphaticness of the word, how emphatic that is, saying, guys, there's no way that the God who has not withheld his son but delivered us, delivered him up for us all, has failed in the giving of that son now to our soul to lavish upon us all things, and I mean all things, nothing lacking at all, proving to the believer who is reading, whether then or now, but primarily at that moment then, showing and proving that the giving of the Son by the grace of God to the soul cannot be anything but the full lavishing upon that soul Every spiritual blessing, every legal requirement, every commanded 
attribute. Now, if a God has lavished, listen to that word, lavish upon the soul such riches. Does that sound like a God who has left any room at all for that soul now justified, now glorified, as we've already covered in these classes, by his own work, by his own mercy, his own grace and work of reconciliation. Has God that has done all of that left any room for that soul to now stand susceptible in any way to condemnation or accusation? There is, therefore, now no condemnation in Christ. That's how this chapter starts. Why? You are in Christ Jesus. If you are in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation. Why? Because if you are in Christ Jesus, you have his life fully bestowed, lavished, upon you, wherein the righteousness of the law, the righteous demand of the law is now fulfilled in you. That does not leave room, wiggle room. That does not leave room for debates. That leaves a soul that stands perfectly stable and anchored in that which is real, that which is spirit, that which is true. See, First John chapter 3, verse 20. And now we'll go from the external accusations of religiously minded people. Again, who you're speaking of, not just a bunch of people trying to give you a bad time, your mother-in-law and your boss. These are religiously motivated people who desire by law to attain a righteousness that you believe and have in reality, but according to their mindset, you claim and you believe that you have received merely by believing upon Jesus, merely by trusting in the, in the sufficiency and competence of his divine presence. Now, let's leave that aside as far as an external condemnation. Let's look a little deeper. 1 John 3.20 speaks of your own heart condemning. What about that condemnation? How does this salvation, because if this, if we can answer this question on the affirmative or in the affirmative, if we can affirm that the soul is secured against our own heart's accusation concerning us, then there's no question as to the heart standing against the accusation of an external source. So let's, let's read this. If our heart, again, 1 John 3, verse 20 and 21, if our heart condemn us, why? Well, any reason. 
condemnation, any reason. Now, this has to do with a standing before God here. This has to do with the soul's standing before God. If your heart condemns you, God is greater than our heart and knoweth all things. Then he turns it in the next verse. Beloved, if our heart condemn us not, then we have confidence. But where's that confidence? Towards God. Remember Paul saying, we are the circumcision who worship God in spirit. We are the circumcision who worship God in spirit, meaning we have received a spiritual circumcision in opposition to the circumcision that the Judaizers are telling you is necessary in the flesh. And so much so does he not agree with that anymore and rebukes that idea that he does not call the Jews who would and the Judaizers who would bring such a charge and, and such a claim. Just he doesn't just call them the circumcision. He calls them uh the concision. Circumcision is not the same as concision unless you recognize what Paul's understanding of the circumcision is beyond the testimonial time frame in which it was uh, used of God. After that moment in time of the testimony and that time where God utilized that uh, circumcision in the flesh to testify of a spiritual circumcision, it was, it was fine. But outside of that context, it becomes not circumcision that is good, but it becomes concision. What does that word mean? It means mutilation. The mutilators is what concision means. Those who mutilate themselves. So he realizes that circumcision in the flesh that's trying to attempt to bring something to you that Christ already has brought to you is nothing more than mutilating your body. Spoken by a man who himself was circumcised the eighth day. What a difference truth makes. What a difference spiritual makes. You realize this, although used for a moment in time, is no longer useful. It no longer is necessary. And if our heart condemns, God is greater than our heart. Most of the issue that we face as believers is not the condemnation or accusations that come from the external, from outside, from other people. I mean, some people are affected by it, others are not. But the strong self-knowing condemnation that comes from our own heart is the, is the biggest issue. But the, the apostle here 
ensures us that our own accusation regarding our own heart's condition, whenever it raises its ugly head, is already overridden by the God who is greater than our hearts. Why? How is that possible? Is God not in agreement with us concerning our soul's condition? Is God not in agreement with us concerning the fact that we have messed up and something's not right as far as our soul? No, God knows all things. And the all things that he knows is those things that is in accordance to his work that he has wrought, his redemption that he has wrought, his salvation that he has made available and has provided to the soul that has believed. And that soul in that state of salvation is known of God in a way that is greater than any knowledge we could ever have. God is continually making his knowledge of our soul's condition known as we see Jesus, as our soul grows in the, in, in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord, as, as Christ is revealed in us by, by the Spirit. Our soul is ever growing in a greater understanding of the knowledge that God already has toward it. God is greater. God's knowledge is greater than the knowledge we have of our own heart's condition. And our heart will condemn us at times. We will look at things. We'll assess ourselves. And our heart will condemn us. But if the heart condemns you, there is a God who stands securely in, he, in, in, the, in the eternalness of his own knowledge and rests and can and will, if we would just turn and allow him to do so, will give our hearts a true repose, a true resting place. Not just to state, but to apprehension or acknowledgement and understanding. Not just to where we are, but the enjoyment of where we are because now his knowledge can be made known in our hearts and our hearts will now be filled with his understanding concerning its condition. See, God is greater than our hearts. He sees a salvation that he has wrought. He sees a reality that he has bestowed a reality of which maybe we are ignorant because we have not yet seen that reality clearly in the face of Jesus Christ. Maybe there's something of that reality that still is not clear in our understanding, but God's understanding is not unclear at all. God's understanding is eternal. God's understanding sees the beginning and the end as one whole one total, one entire reality, his beloved son. And in that knowing, everything is good. Nothing is missing. That's the knowing that overrides our self-condemnation. 
And then God knows the efficacy that works in us, the sufficiency that anchors us, even when we don't. And that's the beauty of understanding. And that's why I can rejoice in understanding that we are ever growing in our understanding of things. We're ever growing in our comprehension. But God knows the entirety of our condition because we are found in his beloved. If our heart is not condemning us, what does that mean? What does that mean? That means we have a confidence that is toward God, that is turned toward him. Check out the direction of this confidence. Again, no confidence. That's what I was saying with Paul in Philippians 3. We are the circumcision. Not the concision, we're the circumcision. Don't let them come to you and say you have to be circumcised. Don't let them come to you and say you, by faith, believing in Jesus is not enough. You're not righteous yet because you haven't done this. You haven't checked these boxes yet. Therefore, it's not complete. You're not complete. Your soul is, is still in limbo. Don't allow that to happen. Stand assured knowing that those of us who are in the spirit, those who have received by faith what the circumcision in the flesh pointed to are the circumcision, the true circumcision that worship God in the spirit, who have a spiritual circumcision, have a spiritual life wrought in us. And have no confidence in the flesh. Our confidence is not directed toward us in any way. What we do, uh, our efforts, anything of us, that's not the direction in which our confidence goes. Our confidence is toward God. Therefore, our heart condemns us not. We understand God has done this and that God has to keep us in this. And he does keep us in this because his abiding presence is the way in which we as souls abide in him. And for us to be removed from that place of safety, The anchor of safety has to be removed from us. And he has already stated that no man will remove us from his hands. We'll talk about that in the next, in the next session. Our confidence, when our confidence and our expectation rest upon ourselves, then our hearts are always full of accusations. 
and, and, and condemnation. And we are incited to action to try to fix things, to try to fix what needs to be fixed. But confidence towards and in the sufficiency of Christ removes the accusation, removes the accusation and allows for no charge to be brought against me. Because here's the thing, when you understand how of God and not of us salvation truly is, you realize that a charge brought against those who are in Christ is not a charge brought against the vessel that is merely filled by the work of God with a divine treasure. The accusation is against the treasure who is in the vessel. It is against the life that has come to the vessel and brought that vessel from death to life. There's where the charge is actually being made. And, and I, let me just say this. When I speak of an accusation or charge or something said against, I'm not talking in any way of anything that we do or anything that we produce by our action. Okay? I go out and rob a bank, then there is a great deal of judgment and condemnation that can come to me. Not, listen, listen to me. I can go to prison. I can get in a whole lot of trouble because of that decision I've made. But guess what doesn't happen if my soul still stands in the confidence upon Christ? My soul doesn't move from its place. I can fall upon the mercy that envelops me, the love that holds me close from which my soul cannot be moved in the midst of that. I can fall upon it. I can come boldly to the throne of grace. And I can receive that mercy. Because I realize my soul has not moved from its place. <coughs> so this no condemnation and no charge is only true with regard to the sufficient fullness that God has provided to us in Christ. Because uh, you can you can cast considerable doubts upon the external things that I do or that you do for God even. That's, that's another little part of this, not just robbing a bank, the things you do for God, a lot, 
a lot of questions can come up about that. There can be a great deal of accusations if you're the one just doing this stuff for God, as to its essentialness or to its necessity. But that which Christ is and that which Christ imputes to us as life, as salvation, is not open for that type of accusation or indictment. Now, let's move on to verse 33. We're going to try to get through these verses. Um, because this is really a huge part of this. These are what we would call the pillars upon our uh, which our souls rest. So this is vital. Verse 33, who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth or makes right. Or I think we've said it in this series of lessons, but I, I know I've said it in the Psalms 119 lessons, that the word righteous also means to bring things into a condition as they ought to be, as it ought to be, to make things as they ought to be, which is what the word justified and righteous means. Things are as they ought to be. Again, when I'm the one who defines that term, when I, my works, my efforts, whatever, when that's the case, and I assume that's the case because it's not truly in Christ, but when I assume that's the case, then things are never as they ought to be. There's always questions. There's always concerns. There's always pieces and parts missing and dangling parts here and missing parts here and afraid thing there and something needs to be fixed and repaired over here. But in him, God's justification is the answer of the thing. God's justification is a big, big deal. Listen to these words. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? And what does he lay as the basis of saying nobody can? Because that's a that's this question is asked with the uh, with the answer already being known, no one. But why? Upon what basis can that be uh, uh, an impossibility? God has justified them. God has made their souls as it ought to be. God has brought them into a right standing with himself. And this is vital to see the true certainty of this state of being in Christ. Remove the thought of those who may take it upon themselves to assume their right to point out something they deem to be condemnable. That's even a word. They have been thoroughly and irrevocably removed from the picture. Look at this. Take them out of the way. God has justified. He's brought salvation to those who are born of him, who are believing. He has, if it were, walled the soul of those who believe, walled their soul in, and has erected an impregnable uh, force, fortress, an impenetrable fortress around the soul called salvation. 
the wall called salvation that the prophet speaks about. But now he even introduces this more uh, or, or one more entity to the picture. And that one person, that one entity that we've already talked about, if the assurance of the soul's condition rests upon anything but God himself, then this can bring about fear and a lot of concern because he interjects God into this picture. And you could, you, you could say this. The only one who would solely have right legal claim to condemn the soul would be God. He's the only one that stands there with perfect right to condemn the soul, destroy the soul, because that soul does not meet his standard because it's his standard that matters. You want to talk about a high standard. But as Paul introduces this, he immediately with it presents the reason that such a condemnation is not at all possible, even from God himself. Forget those people who say you're not holy because you're not circumcised. We're talking about now, Will God condemn it? And Paul's answer is no, but only in the light of a work called justification, a work called Christ made unto us righteousness. Because the God in salvation who could condemn that soul, rightly so, has, by his own power, grace, mercy, secured it in the justifying of it. hope this makes sense. So for God himself to ever bring a charge against that soul that he has justified, seeing alone he would, he would only be the one who had a right to do so. But for him to do so would be for him to deny his own work and to count as nothing the beloved one standing before his gaze, securing this soul that is found in him. That's a big-time security. That's huge. And none of it, none of it is based upon our merit or our effort in any way because it is not him that willeth or him that runneth, but God who has shown mercy. This is a God who has called us, who has justified us, and who has glorified us in this Son. Therefore, the God who has justified us, 
cannot condemn that which he has justified. See, we have taken this from an external accusation of men and says, who cares? It's not credible. Just to coming to an eternal and internal condemnation that God could bring if he would, but because he has wrought such a work that is so certain and secure, eternally secure, he cannot condemn it and will not condemn it, but holds it in place as an anchor holding us in the very presence of the one standing in the sight of God for us. So he doubles down on this even further to point out something by asking a very pointed, loaded question. Because he's about to demonstrate and present the absurdity of the thought or the impossibility of such a thing actually happening. God condemning or anyone else being able to rightly condemn and bring condemnation that is justifiable to those who believe. And he totally nullifies such a thing by presenting how the soul's state of being is actually confirmed. And that is through the work of the person of Jesus Christ. Not works of men, not works we have done. We see the, we see the empty and vain result of that and the frustration of that in Romans 7. Romans 8, we see the remedy to that frustration. And that is the law of life. That's life, Christ living in me. A life where there is no condemnation. He is still doubling down on what he started in Romans 8. He has been assuring them through this chapter of a salvation that is certain, secured, and eternally uh, 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 perfect. And assuring them that their soul is unmovable due to that work that God has wrought. So let's read verse 34 and we'll see this. He goes again. He asks again, who is he that condemneth? Who is it that can condemn? Who is it that can bring a charge? Because it is Christ that died. Rather, that is risen again. Who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. He's packed a big punch here, and he's he's consolidated the whole thing in the work of one man, in the work and the person of one man. He will show us here these pillars, these, these secure places, these foundations, which is one foundation upon which our salvation, our soul in Christ rests. Who is it that condemns? He's just 
removed here all possibility of condemnation. Again, carrying on what he did at the beginning of the chapter. He's again now, once again, presenting how impossible it is that the same God who justifies us will simultaneously incriminate us and condemn us. Natural reasoning would assume that there would be a point in time where there would be something done by us which could somehow alter his perspective, his relation to our soul, his perspective toward our soul. But here's the thing. Such personalization, individualization of our salvation is the lifeblood of every false religious conception. We personify it. We personalize it. We individualize it and say, okay, that's he said that, uh, but I'm pretty sure I can push the envelope a little farther. And there will be that point where God can say, no more. But there's an eternal work that has taken away the possibility of your soul being moved from the place that he has set it. Just like the high priest said this way. In the holiest of all, the high priest stands there clothed in pure white linen, showing the Father, clothed with glory, showing him himself. No representative garments having the stones on the breastplate and the shoulder. None of that was present in the holiest of all. Because God only had to see that one. He didn't have to see many. He didn't have to see even anything that represented the many. He had to see the one living, standing before him who has done the work, who has sacrificed and shed the blood. That one, in that one, God's view, God's knowledge, God's the justification of the whole, the atonement of the whole, was already secured in his seeing of that one and accepting that one. In that holiest of all, they were as a whole accepted in him, but not because of them at all, but because of him and him alone. He stood there. No other man was able to. He did. However, when he comes out and shows himself to them, they had to see the breastplate. They had to see that breastplate on his chest, over his heart. Why? Because they had to see that they were, as a people, as a congregation, 
as a church. They're called the church in the wilderness. As a people, they had to see that they were affixed to that one that God beheld in whom they now are accepted. And because they see him as living, not dead, because he has no sin, because he lives, they live. And they had to see that. They had to observe that breastplate. It became a breastplate of judgment in their midst. The judgment was, it is not us, it is him that stands in the sight of God accepted. It is not us that God has uh, received and, and, and accepted. It's not us. It's him who is in our midst. It's the one who lives in us, in our midst, that has made this so and who has anchored this reality in the heavens for us. They had to see that they were set and fixed unmovably upon the breast and chest and heart of this one man. Their salvation at that moment in time when they see him, now it was already secured in the heavens. It's already secured in them. It's already done. They're, the work of God is already complete. But when they behold this one as he shows himself to them, this is the necessity of the revelation of Jesus Christ. When he is shown to them with that breastplate on, the individualization, the personalization of their atonement that was in their mind left. It went away. Because in the seeing of another outside of themselves who secured the thing, they realized they had no part of securing it. They had no uh, part to play in the game. They had nothing to do with it. And they can rest knowing he's alive. If, he, if he's alive, we're accepted. We have atonement. We are justified in the sight of God for another year under that age of testimony. But that's what they saw. There was not an individualization or personalization of salvation at that moment. And we can still, having a certain and sure and perfect salvation, say, hey, something I do, maybe this or that, maybe this, this thing here, maybe this is the breaking point, maybe this is the problem that will ultimately shove me out of the grace of God. I'm telling you that he has secured something, and we're going to read these places where it's saying that, that cannot be undone. He has secured for us and now in us, if we're born again, something that cannot be undone. Now, for that to be the realization in which you live and are able to rest understanding such great salvation, I ask you, set your affection on that which is above. 
set your heart to see that great salvation because it is that great. It is that sure. It is that certain. And I promise you, once you see him and you continue to grow in that appearing, in that understanding that his appearing brings, you will, your confidence will turn exclusively toward him and rest there permanently. Okay? So here are the, uh, again, for lack of a better way of saying it, the, the, the four pillars. Here's those pillars upon which everything rests. It is Christ who died. Now, again, this is the answer to who is it that condemneth? It is Christ who died. See it? The first pillar, the first thing set forth is a complete work of Christ that has broken the first condition of man. Dead in sin. Now he died for us so that we may live by him. That we may be dead to sin by him removing us by that work of death from that source of transgression, from the headship of the Adamic man, to be brought under the headship of a perfect man, under the rule of the greater than Solomon, married to another man who is the means by which fruit that is pleasing to God is actually raw. This is from uh, Hebrews 9.26 from the Weymouth translation. But as a matter of fact, he has appeared once for all at the close of the ages in order to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself condemning sin in the flesh. Condemning sin in the flesh is what Romans 8 talks about. He has put away sin once and for all at the close of the ages. King James says the end of the world by the sacrifice of himself. It is he that died. He did this. He has died and in so dying, destroyed the works of the devil. He has put away death by the sacrifice of himself so that we who are dead can now be raised in the resurrection himself to life eternal and in that life be secured in that which is new where the old has passed away and the new has come. Second Timothy chapter one, verse 10, but which has now been plainly revealed through the appearing of our savior, Jesus Christ. He has put an end to death and brought life and immortality to light through the good news. Meaning he's made it 
available, brought it to light, made it available. No longer a hidden thing. Now it's accessible to those who have come and will come to him. That's the grace of God that has appeared to all. That will bring salvation to all men. This is what he has done. He has brought life, put an end to death, brought life and immortality. This is 1 Corinthians 15. And I keep telling you, 1 Corinthians 15 is about being in the resurrection. So it's not about a future resurrection. It's about being in the resurrection, coming from the first man who's of the earth, earthy, Adam, to being now found in the second man who is the Lord from heaven, who is the life-giving, life-giving spirit, Romans 8, the law of life in the spirit, freed me from the law of sin and death, coming from that to the law of life, to the second man, the Lord from heaven. And in so doing, in that transaction and transition from the first to the second, from the flesh to the spirit, which he's just told them in Romans 8, you are not in the flesh, you're in the spirit. In that transaction, we have put off mortality, put on immortality, put off corruption, put on incorruption. Because we have partaken through that work of a victory wrought of God over sin, over death, the grave, and the law. Read that in 1 Corinthians 15. And the law. The law's in there. Why would that be there if it's about the end of the world or the future? No, it's about a transition from the law to faith, from the flesh to the spirit, from the first to the second, the old covenant to the new. Being found in the resurrection has done that work and secured the soul in that work. First, uh, first chapter of Galatians, verse 4, who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil world according to the will of God our Father. This present evil world in Galatians, he's not talking about this world, pretty, pretty sucky, but he's talking about an evil world. The word evil there actually means toilsome, and laborious, wherein work is done, and efforts are made that makes you tired. And uh, remember what Jesus comes in Matthew 11 and says, Come to me, you who are lab- uh, weary, heavy laden. It's, it's what this word means. Those who have been under laborious uh, environment, in, in a laborious environment. And a toilsome environment. I can't even say the word. And in so doing are exhausted by the labor. He came, gave himself for our sin to deliver us from. That's a deliverance. Delivered us from the kingdom of darkness into the translated us into the kingdom of his dear son. This present evil world. This laborious, toilsome age, that word age there, not world, but age. Why does he call it present? Because at that moment, the edifices of that system were still everywhere. 70 AD had not happened. The temple was still there. There was They were still offering feasts. 
they were still having the uh, or offering sacrifices. They were still having the feast. All of the things that were testimonies of Christ were still happening as if they were still valid. And the external edifices of the, uh, that, that would perpetuate such an idea were still standing. So he says they're still present. But God has delivered us from this present laborious age in accordance to the will of God the Father. What will? The will that Jesus in Hebrews 10 says, the, the, the whole volume of the books written of me to do thy will, O God. What does that will finally come to? To take away the first and establish the second. Okay? It's gathering together everything. You see, he's gathering together the whole work of salvation. What has freed us from sin, what has fulfilled the law entirely, what's put away the purpose for those things to even exist, and has freed the soul that was under that legalistic system by bringing, it in, bringing into it the life that fulfills that system and that law. This was a work of the death of Christ. But here's, here's where he continues. But rather was raised, not just that he died, but that he is also raised. Romans 4 shows you this. It was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed uh, to him, speaking of Abraham, but for us also to whom it shall be imputed if we believe on him that raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered for our offenses or delivered for our sins and was raised again for our justification. Remember what he's just said. It is God who has justified. The justification that he's saying God has done rests upon the fact that he is risen. Because in his being raised, he is raised triumphant over the death that had no hold on him. Okay? He put it away. He took it off. And he was raised up out from it. It has no more claim upon him. Therefore, it has no claim upon those who are in him. Therefore, Romans would say, liken yourself to be dead indeed unto sin and alive unto God through, through Christ. He's the agency by which that is so of your soul as well. Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism and death that like as Christ was raised up, from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Newness of life is the soul living in the full deliverance from death, sin, through the presence of the risen Christ. And this is how it is stated that he was raised for our justification. God raised one righteous man who stands before him, and by the grace of God, we are of God in that man who is made unto us righteousness, justification. 
according to Acts 13, 29, the, the, the declaration of the glad tidings to those people, according to Acts 13, <coughs> is how that the promise that was made to the fathers is now fulfilled unto us, their children, in that he raised up Jesus from the dead. That's the hope. That's the hope he was put in, in front of King Agrippa for, declaring to them the risen Christ. And that is why it is also said, if Christ be not raised, if Christ be not raised, then our salvation is absolutely worthless and we are still in our sins. That's 1 Corinthians 15. The resurrection chapter. See? That's why it's so important. It's not just that he died. It's that God raised him up. Raised him up victorious over death. Victorious over the sin that he put away in his body. He put it all up. All aside. Came forth in a new creation. One man righteous whole thing been wiped away just like the flood. Him being raised. Now that we are in him, raised together, seated together, we are beneficiaries of a salvation that has no sin in it. A salvation without sin. So, If he's not risen, this is the important part. There is nowhere for us to go. There is no door. There is no way into life itself. And therefore, out of death, out of sin. But in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. So this moreover raised, not just dead, not just died, but moreover raised, some would see it as a correction. But it, it's really the securing of the believer. If he ever lives in the sight of God, unto God, as one upon whom death and sin have no legal claim, and therefore that is the case and the state of those who are born of that spirit. Now, who sits at the right hand of God? That's number three. Died, raised for our justification, now sits at the right hand of God, the place of power, the place of authority, sitting as a man who has finished his work once and for all. Hebrews 1, 3 through 4 says this, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sin, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high, being made so much better than an angel, 
as he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 1. I'm just going to read these verses, and we're, we're, I think I've gone over time. Now, in the consideration of the things which are being spoken, this is the chief point. Such a high priest we possess, who took his seat on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a ministering servant of the holy places, even those of the tent, tabernacle, the genuine one, which the Lord pitched and not man. Hebrews 10, 11 through 14. And while every priest stand, minister, stands ministering day after day, constantly offering the same sacrifices, though such can never rid us of our sins, this priest, on the contrary, after offering for sins a single sacrifice of, per, listen to this, offering for sins a single sacrifice of perpetual efficacy, took his seat at God's right hand, waiting from that time onward till his enemies be put as a footstool under his feet. For by a single offering, he has forever completed the blessing for those whom he is setting free from sin. What a beautiful, that's from the Wayman translation. First Peter 3, verse 21. Also to which an antitype doth now save us. Baptism, not a putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the question of a good conscience in regard to God through the rising again of Jesus, who is at the right hand of God, having gone on to heaven, messengers, authorities, and powers, having now been subjected to him. Now, as a small note that may be a note of interest. Uh, there's a rabbinical view. This is from the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament. And there's a view bet between rabbis that depicts the law as being set at God's right hand. But those rabbis say, then that's how they see it now. But they say that the Christ or the Messiah will replace the law at the right hand of God during the Messianic age. See, this to me is a beautiful thought. I mean, even though they don't understand that it's already happened, to see that the law is over, overtaken by the Messiah himself at the right hand of God. What a great picture that is. And, and thought of being seated, it, it, it speaks of, to me of a permanent condition of victory, of complete victory, of complete rest. And people will talk about and, and read that he's seated until you know, the enemy is put under his feet, and they'll talk about the enemy that is called death. If you, if you read a literal translation of what we read a while ago as far as the enemy that is put under his feet, it will, or the enemy death, which is the, the last enemy, 
A literal translation actually puts that and says the last enemy death is overcome. It shows you that, the literal translation of it. Oh, we don't have time to get into it, but you can go look that up yourself. Now, to end this, here's the fourth pillar. Here's the, the fourth uh, matter that secures us. Hebrews chapter 7, and it has to do with him making who is making intercession for us. His intercession for us secures us. Listen, he died, he's raised, he is seated, and he is making intercession. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 22, by so much was Jesus made the guarantee of a better covenant, and they truly were many priests because they were not suffered to continue by reason of death. But this man, because he continueth forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. See, the unchangeable nature of his priesthood adds so much significance to the fact that he ever lives making intercession for us. And here's Here's the next verse. Wherefore, he is able also by that unchangeable priesthood to save them to the uttermost who come unto God through him, seeing that he ever liveth to make intercession for them. For such a high priest became us, meaning was necessary for us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, made higher than the heavens who hath no necessity daily as the chief priests, first for his own sins to offer up sacrifice, and then for those of the people. For this he did once, having offered up himself. For the law doth appoint men chief priests, high priests, having infirmity. That's important. But the word of the oath, after the law, appointed the son to the age having been perfected. See, this is the high priest we needed. This is so important. He, by this intercession, has brought to us an uttermost salvation, a salvation that is absolute with nothing missing in it, because it's an unchangeable priesthood. He will not be moved from that place before the Father because he cannot be moved. And he has provided to my soul in that state of unmovability a utter, an uttermost salvation through that intercession. I can't be moved either. <laughs> my soul cannot be removed from its place. That's the one we needed. Listen to the nature of this high priest. He is holy, the only one. He is harmless. He is undefiled. He is separate from sinners. And he's made higher than the heaven. That's the one who we needed as a high priest because the ones that the law appointed to be priests were men just like us who had infirmity, who were sinners, who were weak in the flesh. 
to perform the intercession that is necessary for our soul to remain in the state of security that it has necessitated this high priest that we have because priests who were of the same nature and born of the same corruptible seed as we were born could not bring about this type of salvation, could not effectuate a sufficient and unchanging intercession. The soul that was bound to death and sin necessitated the man of spirit who was other than we are in every point, in every category, we were desperately in need of such a one to secure salvation through death, resurrection, seated bes beside God, and intercession for us. We needed him with all desperation to be standing there in the sight of God and to, for us, define our soul's condition within the context of his own holiness, his own perfection, his own undefiled nature. Listen to the words here of Kenneth Weiss. For not into the holy places constructed by human hands did the Messiah enter, which are the types of the genuine, but into heaven itself. Listen to this. Now to be manifested before the face of God on our behalf. There's the true manifestation that God beholds, that God receives. He is manifesting himself as our great salvation and as the anchor of our very soul through his intercession for us. And God is well pleased and satisfied in that manifestation. Barnes note says, this is the consideration which the apostle, the apostle Paul urges for the security of the Christians that is drawn exclusively from the work of Christ. And by all of these things, he argues their complete security. Our souls are secure because he he lives in it and has secured it in his own person not of us lest any man should boast of god our salvation is and that is all that is necessary 
So thank you guys for listening. I know this is not sure how long it's been, but it's been enough. Oh, yeah, a very long time. Sorry. Um, I just needed to get, get it said. Um, I didn't want to split this up into a third session. Thanks for your patience, uh, uh, listening, listening to this. It's, uh, you know, it's, a uh, a blessing that you're, you're listening and it's a pleasure to have you out there and knowing that you are there. If you, uh, have any questions concerning what I've shared during this session, please, um, let me know and we'll, we'll talk about it. Uh, email me, uh, ravenbird at gmail.com. So love you very much. Thanks for being out there and listening. Thanks for all that you do for us here. Thanks for your support. We appreciate it. Amen.